0: Our gospel lesson today comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. Hear now the word of our Lord. From that time on, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them? They gain the whole world, but forfeit their life. Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man, the human one, is to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, I want to ask you this morning this important theological question. And there's several different ways to answer it. You can think about it theologically, thinking about doctrine and philosophy, or you can think about it strictly by looking at the narrative and trying to make sense of the story thus far. But here's the question, and I think it's an important enough question that many of us don't recognize. We differ theologically as Christians on the way that we answer this question. Why did Jesus go to Jerusalem? I mean, why did he go to Jerusalem knowing, as he just stated in the passage that we read, he would be crucified there? Is it that Jesus was masochistic? Did he have a death wish? Maybe he was a daredevil. Or, okay, maybe you might believe that Jesus was preordained, as if there was some kind of destination that Jesus must somehow or another die just as a part of being who he was. But I think that that misses not only the narrative thus far, but something very important about the heart of who Jesus was and what he was teaching us. I think Jesus went to Jerusalem specifically because he was going to bat for those he loved. Jesus went to Jerusalem because, as we have seen so far, Jesus' entire ministry is built around finding those who are vulnerable and those who are sick and broken and those who are marginalized and outcast and restoring them to wholeness. Finding those who need help the most and giving it to them. And at every stage we have seen, Jesus comes up against opposition. And at every stage that opposition is less concerned with the healing and welfare of the people that Jesus is caring for and more about keeping things the way that they are. They're bothered by Jesus because Jesus represents a challenge. Jesus is going to Jerusalem because He's going specifically to confront the powers and confront them face to face. The powers that are keeping people from finding wholeness and healing and suffering. So Jesus is going to Jerusalem not just to entertain people, not just to directly interact with people on an individual level, but He sees something systemic that he can address and confronts it head on. So I want to introduce this idea to you by asking you an important personal question. Who in your life would go to bat for you or has gone to bat for you? Is there anybody that you can think of in your life when you needed them the most, they stood up for you? Well, for me, that, the answer to that question is my mom. Now, I use my mom a lot in sermons as an example because my mom, I think, has illustrated to me through her life the way that I think about God. And I just can't help it. That's, just, that's when I think, and I'm honest with myself, I think a lot of my imagination about God come from my interactions with my mom growing up. But here's a couple of examples of what I mean that I think helps me understand this passage today. One is, when I was sick, and I had a lot of hearing problems as a kid, and I I would have ear infections after, I would go back and forth to doctors over and over, but I always remember, when I cried out for help, my mom came running. Always. There were times when my mom, I remember my mom, sitting down next to my bed all night long, with wash rags in her hand, medicine, at her right hand a, a basin filled with water i think that she used maybe to wipe my face off i don't remember all the details in fact i don't almost don't even remember the pain but i remember my mom's presence when i was in need my mom was there now some of you know this about me i, I was a mathematician for a little while and uh, i used to teach math at moorhead state university and I would often tell my kids, uh, tell my students the same story over and over about, you know, I wasn't always good at math. And part of the thing that made me good at math was watching my mom and interacting with her and helping her, but my mom noticed when I was in seventh grade that I was struggling. One of the things my mom didn't realize was I was in, I was in algebra class and seventh graders aren't, don't take algebra. I was, I was supposed to be in a, an early or maybe a pre-algebra class, so I was a little bit further than my peers. But I always got my homework done before class and was quick enough on my feet that the teacher was almost always bothered by me. I think he felt threatened by me enough that I always ended up with extra homework. (laughs) Okay, so I was a problem child. I was smart, I did all my homework, and I caused trouble in class. That was me. But my teacher would give me this extremely extraordinarily long list of homework problems to do. And I think he must have thought I wouldn't do them. But my mom, after the third time finding me asleep at the kitchen table, in fact, actually one time I would sleep underneath of the table. I had no idea how I got there. Because as a seventh grader, I had been staying up all night long doing my math homework. The next day I remember in class, After the class started, watching out the door all the commotion happening in class, people wondering where Mr. Sharp was, and then we looked up and Mr. Sharp is standing outside of the door of the classroom, and there's some shouting, and then I figured out he's shouting back at my mom because my mom is shouting at him because my mom had driven all the way to school to confront him for being a bully. Okay, so maybe he had trouble containing me in class. But my mom, the image that I remember of my mom is that my mom didn't even tell me she was coming. My mom went straight to the source of the problem. Rather than talking with me and trying to figure out what I was doing wrong, my mom decided to go straight to the teacher to confront him. In my mind, when I think about my mom growing up, I remember my mom was always there to help me when I was sick, when I was in need. And my mom always stood up for me. Always. Who goes to bat for you? Who would go to bat for you? When we read this passage, I think that we start to kind of see if you're reading the story as a story and following the narrative, you can put the pieces together rather than trying to think through all of this complicated theological nonsense, really. You start to see maybe that there's a reason Jesus is going to Jerusalem that might help us understand how to live in the world as a church. Peter, Peter makes a mistake in this passage. And it's strange because last week, I think you probably noticed, Jesus calls Peter the rock and says to Peter, I'm going to build my church on you. The thing that Peter has so much faith that Jesus says, that faith that you've got, I'm going to build an entire new citizenship, by the way, which is what the word church means in the New Testament. I'm going to build a new citizenship of people with the kind of faith that you have and here peter rebukes jesus now you have to ask yourself what in the world was peter thinking why would peter confront jesus and rebuke him and of course you know jesus goes from calling peter the rock to calling peter satan he gets the worst rebuke of anybody that jesus gives at this very moment so here's what we have from Peter. I want to just wrestle this out here. Peter had seen Jesus do miracles. He had seen Jesus heal his mother in law at the very beginning of the story. He had seen Jesus feed thousands of people. He had seen Jesus turn to everyone when, when the disciples and everyone else was turning them away. Jesus would call them and say, Come to me. And Peter had seen them be healed. Peter had even seen Jesus walk on water and had tried himself and failed. Peter has seen a lot from Jesus, but Peter has missed something very important about at the heart of Jesus' message. Jesus is not just healing people who are broken and restoring people who are outcasts and calling them fully human and blessing people, but if you look at the cornerstone of Jesus' teachings, Sermon on the Mount, and even what you might call the Ten Commandments, you know, that first, the Beatitudes. Peter might at this stage have gotten most of it right. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who mourn. But he missed that eleventh one, the very end Beatitude. Blessed are you who, if you start to imitate what I do and act the way that I, I act, Jesus is saying. Blessed are you when you're going to be persecuted, when you're going to be condemned, when the world looks negatively on you because of me. You might think that Jesus' actions and behavior and ministry is benign. But here at the end of this very important beatitude, we notice that at the very beginning of Jesus' teachings, he's telling you there's going to be problems if you do what I do. And you should expect it. Peter missed that. And not only that, but if you follow along later in in Matthew 10, when Jesus is sending his disciples out, and he's telling them, go out. Jesus had just then been called Beelzebub. And the the Pharisees, the religious leaders, had come to Jesus and said, he must be a demon, because only that that way could he cast demons out of other people. This conflict between the Pharisees and the religious leaders and Jesus come head to head, and Jesus tells his disciples, you're going to go out there and you're going to do what I have done, and you're going to heal people and restore them and bless them, and guess what? The religious leaders are going to come after you for it. Peter somehow has missed that. And then in Matthew 15, 15, Jesus, when he's sending his disciples out, he says, and guess what What they have done to me, they will do to you. They called me a demon, they're going to call you demons. And if you're not willing to carry your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of the gospel that I'm preaching. Jesus says that to his disciples. Peter has gotten a lot of everything right about Jesus, and this key thing he's missed, because all the way up until now, Peter is worshiping Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who's going to bring salvation, and yet at the same time, Peter has missed a key important fact. Because when Jesus says the Pharisees who have just come up to me and criticized me, I'm going to go confront them head-on in Jerusalem. And they're going to crucify me for it. And Peter says, no, Lord. Peter has missed something really important. Because Peter still thinks in his mind that the Pharisees and the religious leaders represent God. He has failed to recognize that what Jesus is doing is trying to go to the heart of the Hebrew Scriptures, to the heart of the story of salvation of God's people, all the way up until now. Jesus is trying to show them that what the religious leaders are teaching may be religious, but it has nothing to do with bringing healing and wholeness and love and peace to the people. And Peter, in his mind, wants to follow Jesus, but he wants to keep things the way they are, too. And Jesus says, no, if you want to follow me, you can't just heal people and be nice to people on an everyday basis. You have to confront the whole powers that cause everything to be the way that they are head on. I'm going to give you a short illustration. My best friend, college roommate... uh, person that I spent many, many, many hours with, wrestling with life together. Even she and I spent time together doing international missions together. She came out to me as transgender a few years ago. And uh, she just happens to be my sister. Here's the story, though, is that in my family, we have four pastors. My mom, my other sister, my younger brother, and me. And at the time, my sister, who was, was wrestling with her gender dysphoria, she was serving as an evangelist chair from a large church in South Carolina. So at the time, there were five of us. And she comes to me, and she's wrestling because she has no place to go. And she has carried this around with her all of her life and now comes to me and is afraid to tell me because she's afraid that the message is going to get out. And she's not going to be prepared to share this part of herself with her family because she is afraid she's going to get ostracized. That her family that loves her now will not love her then when they finally discover who she really is. Here's the problem is that it wasn't, it wasn't about what my mom believed or what the rest of my family believed. It was about the perception that my sister had of us because we were pastors, because we were Christians because we were believers, because we made this part of our journey, because we were followers of Jesus, she had the impression that what it meant to be a follower of, a G- of Jesus was to think that people who were transgender were less than human, disgusting to God, and that the church had nothing to offer them. And here was my problem. is I, at the time when she told me, of course I, I just embraced her. I said, you obviously have not been listening to the sermons that I preach and the things that I do. You would have known that I would welcome you. And yet, even knowing me, she still felt uncomfortable sharing this part of her life with me. Even more than that, take this. I started looking frantically to find someone in Kentucky, because at the time I'm living in New Jersey now, that could meet with her, that could talk with her, that could pray with her. Someone that I trusted could listen, just listen to her. And I couldn't find a single person. I didn't know a single person in Kentucky, a single pastor in Kentucky that I could call, that I could trust enough. And I had been a Methodist pastor for several years because I felt the same way she did, that the church is not the place to go if you want to find safety. The church is the place you run from. What was I supposed to do? Well, you know, I, I did a Google search. And somehow or another, I recognized that there was this thing called GayChurch.org. And so I started searching through there, seeing if I could find some place in Kentucky, and there was two, one in Louisville and one in Lexington. So I called the pastor that was at the church in Lexington, and guess what? She was a member of the United Church of Christ. And so I talked to her, and she said, Well, in our church, that we make this a hallmark of who we are. That we're a welcoming place that anybody can come to. And We're not just going to listen to your sister. We will go to bat for her. We're not just going to welcome her. We're going to celebrate her. I don't know how that relationship has turned out, but I tell you this, that I made that commitment at that day that I had to do something different with my life. I no longer could be someone that just made it okay that the world was the way it was. I had to do something personal with my life to make it known to everyone else that if, if you want to find a safe person to talk to, I'm not just going to be safe with you. I'll go to bat for you. Many of us don't, though. Many of us, I think, are like Peter. We know that if we come out and start showing support and being open as a place that people can come to to find healing and wholeness, if we find people who are marginalized and outcast and call them ours, that there are going to be people, even in our pews, who will say, I'm not comfortable with that. We will find opposition and we'll find opposition not just from within the church, we'll find opposition from the church at large. Last week, there were 150 evangelical pastors who came out with a statement called the Nashville Statement. And if you haven't heard of it, I suggest you read it. These pastors now feel afraid. They feel that their faith is being taken from them because there are pastors like me who stand up for people who are marginalized, particularly homosexual and transgender persons. And so they issued this statement called the Nashville Statement aimed to try to make it clear that there are pastors who still hold this conservative perspective. I think that it's a challenge for many of us today to make it clear also. I think that the Nashville Statement got one thing right. When it comes to issues of people who are outcast and marginalized, you cannot just agree to disagree. The Nashville Statement said that and I agree. You cannot just agree to disagree because when you agree to disagree then nobody is left going to bat for people who need you the most so here's my challenge for us this morning as followers of jesus who see jesus telling peter i'm going to go right to the heart of the matter and guess what it's not going to be pretty but i have to do it jesus is going to bat for those he loves to transform an entire religious system, not because they were Jewish, but because they had completely denied the whole history of Hebrew salvation. Not, and I'm not criticizing Christianity. I'm criticizing a form of Christianity that uses religion as a tool to make people feel good about themselves while making other people feel lousy. There is an alternative to this. Which is to recognize that at the heart of the Gospel is a person named Jesus who went to bat for people, even willing to go right to the heart of the matter to confront it, despite what would happen to him. I think when Jesus says, If you will not carry the cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. I don't think Jesus is saying, I don't like you if you won't become a Christian. I think what Jesus is saying is if you want to really find wholeness and healing for the broken world, you've got to confront the problems head on. And nobody's going to fix it until the people who know the difference stand up and do something about it. What Peter has missed at the heart of the gospel is the gospel is not just for you and me, it's for all of us. And that means we can do the best we can to heal and care for the people next to us, but sometimes we just need to make it clear who we are. We are a people who welcome everybody we won't just welcome you and let you sit next to us. We will go to bat for you. My challenge to you as a church is whether or not that's a challenge that you'll take on, whether this can be a place that thinks of himself as a place for not just for healing and wholeness, but a place that can declare to the world, if you need someone to bat for you, come to us. We'll care for you. And maybe somebody like myself searching for someone to call They'll find this church and say, ah, here's a place I can send you. Here's somebody that will care for you. Here's a church that will welcome you. Amen? I want to close this morning as we are getting ready to sing uh, We Praise You, O God, number 420. Before we stand, I just want to invite us to share in a, in a, in a short like two-minute silent meditation. Um, last time when I Talked. I know sometimes I bring up very controversial stuff, and we haven't had a chance to talk. We need to talk, and sometimes Sunday morning is good for that. But this morning, I just want us to just be silent. Just take a minute just to listen to what God might be saying to you, to give our hearts a chance for God to reorient us based on at least something that we've gotten this morning. If you will, just join me for a moment.